Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Handle Publishing, home to the Neil Baggio thriller series, including the novels Veritas, Ave Maria, and Colloquium, which released at the beginning of August. More installments in the series are on the way, and last month, Blue Handle announced a Neil Baggio graphic novel contest. They're taking submissions through November 1st and will announce a winner by the end of the year. Learn more at neilbaggio.com. Blue Handle Publishing is also working with local best-selling author Andrew Brandt to publish Brandt's thriller, The Unwinding Cable Car, on November 17th. You can find more details at bluehandlepublishing.com. Today's guest is Teresa Kennedy. National Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States begins this week, and Teresa is the president of the Barrio Neighborhood Planning Committee. She's also a retired AISD employee, and before coming to Amarillo, she grew up as a kid in the only Hispanic family in a small town in Utah. Today, she's one of those people who works behind the scenes in a variety of community building events and activities. And because she arrived in Amarillo after growing up somewhere else, she brings a really interesting perspective to the city itself and to Amarillo's Hispanic community. So here's Teresa Kennedy. Teresa Kennedy, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Jason. I I, I know you listen to the show, and so I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm glad we've had the chance to finally connect so I can interview you. And I want to start the way I start with everybody else uh, out here on my back porch, uh, which is to ask, how did you end up in Amarillo in the first place? So what brought you here? So I actually grew up in Snowville, Utah, and where that's located is five miles uh, south from the Idaho state line or okay. 75 miles north of Salt Lake City. Okay. Most people know Salt Lake. Is that like in the mountains and stuff then? It's in the mountains, okay. yes. And so uh, in Snowville, there were about somewhere between uh, 160 to 175 people that lived there. And at one point in elementary school, there were 36 kids right. from kindergarten to sixth grade. So I lived there until I was 15. Um, my dad died when I was two. He worked for a farmer, he and my uncle. And so my mom was left to raise six children on her own, uh, age nine and under. And then six wow. months later, my baby sister was born. So she was raising seven children in Snowville. And um, she didn't drive. She didn't have, uh, she didn't graduate from high school. She didn't have a car. Uh, we were renting a home. And so we grew up in poverty. Uh, we were on free and reduced lunch and Medicaid and food stamps. And at age 15, we moved to a, a little bigger town, Tremont, Utah, about 36 miles south, southeast. And that's where she bought her first home. And she finished high school and got her GED and so on. So from there, I went to the University of Utah for two years, and I was an accounting major. And I chose accounting because account accountants handle money, and that okay. was important to me to do that. But during my sophomore year, I realized I didn't care for it. So I took a sociology class and really liked it and thought, well, I want to be a social worker. They help people. And they didn't have an undergrad program there, so my brother was here in Amarillo, and he invited me to visit during spring break, and I took a tour of West Texas State University. Okay. They had an undergrad program in social work. So I transferred when I was 20 in 1981 to Canyon, to WT. How did your brother end up here then? 
So he joined the military when he was 18, and um, he was actually stationed here for a while. Okay. And he met his uh, first wife here, and they ended up living here. She actually grew up in the Barrio neighborhood. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up. Was it uh, was it an, an agricultural community? Was it like a mountain town? I mean, what what was what was kind of the uh, e- economy in that area? So it was agricultural. Okay. My my father, and my aunt, or my uncle, excuse me, worked for a farmer, and they actually lived out at that farming area until he died, and then we moved into Snowville, and it was twenty miles apart. So. My dad um, just had a first grade education, and so he'd been farming for quite a while. He and my mom grew up in Kansas. Also in this town, we were the only Hispanic family and Catholic family in a community of LDS and white families. Okay. So my aunt and uncle lived 20 miles to the west of us. So even our church, our Catholic church, was 51 miles away. Wow. And so we commuted with my aunt and uncle. They picked us up. And they would take us to church during that time. So with Snowville being so little, there was a grocery store, a post office, a couple gas stations, a little motel, and that was it. You know, being the only Hispanic family, being the only Catholic family, I mean, you've got a, a, you know, this ethnic isolation, this religious isolation. You're in a very small town. I mean, did, did you feel... Going to school in, in a small school, did you feel kind of separated from the rest of your classmates or the rest of the community? So we knew all our neighbors because everybody knew everybody at that time. But I did feel different. I mean, my skin color was different. My mother spoke Spanish. My older siblings spoke Spanish. And I remember asking my mom to not speak Spanish in front of my friends because mm. they thought she was talking about them. So I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I understood it more than I spoke it. And also I knew it was different because uh, being having only an LDS church there, there were nights and afternoons that the rest of the students would go to their church services and we wouldn't. Right. Um, even during Easter Lent, you know, every Friday we'd walk home three blocks to have fish with my mom in our home. And, and you know, we'd have our religious service during that time as well. So... It, it was different. Um, the great thing about the town was that neighbors were helping neighbors. I mean, we most of us were employed by the time we were nine years old, so our neighbors uh, hired us to do different work. We shared vegetables and gardens and chickens and so on. So it was a very unified group, but I, I did feel the difference. Because socialization is such a big deal about growing up um, as a teenager, and when you have this separate social gathering after school, you know, where all of the LDS kids are hanging out and going to church events and stuff like that. And obviously you're not a part of that. It, it still isolates you a little bit. It prevents you from maybe building a lot of those relationships that they're building in off hours. It does. Uh, I remember that all sports activities were through that church. And so if my brothers were going, our sisters were going to participate, they had to actually attend a service Wow. Okay. of some kind. Or if we went to a there was no theater, so if we went to a movie, it was inside their gym. And if we, when we had dance class from school, it was inside that gym. So it was very oriented around the LDS church, and we were not LDS. So um, it was different. And even when we moved to Tremont, and it was Tremont about that time was 
probably less than 3,000 people, and so it was pretty similar. So pretty, as you see here in Amarillo, about every other block is a church. Well, yeah. there it was every other block. It was an LDS church okay. for the most part. So, in fact, literally across the street from us. So coming to Amarillo uh, or the Amarillo area via Canyon and WTSU at the time, um, what did you find when, when you made that transition? How did it feel compared to how you had grown up? It was a shock. It was a, really a cultural shock for me. First of all, I'd grown up in the mountains and lots of trees. We conspicuously <laughs> lack mountains here. Uh, this is very flat here. You do have four true seasons, and we had a long winter, so mm-hmm. uh, that was very different. And then the way people spoke um, was different, the, the accent, the slowness, um, the cicadas. Yeah. were very. I didn't know what those were. I thought they were just very loud crickets. Well, we'll hear them during the course of this yeah. interview, I'm sure. <laughs> the wind, it was just very different. And the, and the cultures that are here and the many, many churches, I had never heard of all these uh, religions, all these faith-based churches. And so instead of it being LDS churches all over the place, it was just all these other churches. Yeah, and, and the LDS, they may have multiple churches, but it's, it's all part of the same faith structure. Correct. Here you have... A bunch of Christian churches or a bunch of evangelical churches, yes. Um, but they have all kinds of different traditions: Church of Christ, Methodist, Southern Baptist, um, and all you had known was the Catholic faith and the LDS Mormon faith, right? And in my high school and at Barbara High School in Tremont, there was one Methodist family. So when I went to the University of Utah, I met my first Baptist roommate, and I asked her, "What is a Baptist?" And she explained it to me, and she actually had moved there. Her family moved from Texas. Hmm. So I learned that a lot of Baptists live in Texas, and I thought, oh, okay. Um, What I did really like at WT were the different cultures and um, met people from all over the country, um, New York, California, uh, people that I hadn't met before. And then there were a lot of, uh, there were quite a few Hispanics, and there was a Mexican-American student association that I became a part of. And that was really great to see because I hadn't seen a lot of people of color in my community. In fact, I was 18 before I met a um, professional person of color. Hmm. And I didn't know that Hispanics could be doctors and lawyers and attorneys and uh, doctors and attorneys and, and just professional people, teachers even. Because the first time I met someone of color that was a professional, I was 18 at the University of Utah, and she was an American Indian law professor and um, practicing attorney. And I was just stunned to meet her because I thought, oh, my gosh, you look like me, Mm -hmm. and you're a professional. How did you do that? So that fascinated me. And and moving to WT really opened my eyes to the fact that people of color can be professionals. And you've, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit. You've been very active within the Hispanic community, uh, working uh, with the Barrio Neighborhood Association. I, I wonder, as a student, you know, coming to WT, um, having not really grown up within the Hispanic culture other than your own family, if there was, maybe if, if there were some challenges in, Getting to know people, um, like you said, who look like you, uh, and, and being embraced by this larger culture when your experience of it had been fairly limited living in Utah. It was a challenge. Um, I remember graduating in 1979, 
and there were only six Hispanics in my class. Hmm. And I was the only one that went on to college out of the six. And so coming here where I was surrounded by a lot of Hispanics uh, was very different for me. For one thing, I wasn't fluent in Spanish. Mm -hmm. I'm still not. And um, so that was a little different. And then just meeting people from all over the country that, that, um, you know, back in Utah, they called them Chicanos. Here they called them Mexican-Americans. It was just kind of a a different way to do that, um, to learn about the culture. And I had to learn more about my own culture because I didn't know a lot about it, about the celebrations and so on, and, and just uniting and I'm glad for the opportunity at WT to be able to do that, to get to know people from there, and then to continue to it uh, now that I'm 59 years old. So I I know you've had multiple facets of your career uh, once you graduated. Tell me a little bit about what you went on to do. So because I was interested in social work, ever since I was a little kid, I like to organize things, and I like to find resources. If it's free, that's even better. And so I was able to do that as a social worker with... um, the High Plains Epilepsy Association with the Amarillo State Center. And then in 1991, Amarillo ISD had a brand new grant, and it was a drug-free schools and communities grant. Mm -hmm. And so the four drug prevention specialists were hired, and I was hired for the Caprock Cluster. Okay. I was actually hired for Caprock High School, and that's where I was based. And then it later moved into the cluster, and then for my last five years in doing that, over a 20-year period, I was the AISD prevention specialist for five years. And that was, you know, during a period, you know, where drug prevention was, um, was really considered like, like a very important thing in the schools. Yes. Maybe there's less focus about it now. I'm not quite sure, but I know that in the late eighties and the nineties, everybody was talking about that. So tell me a little bit about like the work that you did as, as a drug prevention specialist. So when we started, it was prevention and intervention. So you might um, work with an Alcoholics Anonymous group and then doing a lot of training, training for staff, training for students, coming up with resources and what to share with them because at that time we had 53 campuses. Now I believe it's 55. And so um, we also were able to train high school kids to go into the elementary and middle schools and be able to do skits and programs and stuff, really encouraging kids to be drug-free. And about 1995, they added a violence prevention component to it because we were hearing more about school shootings throughout the country, and um, so they added that component as well. So it became safe and drug-free schools and communities. And then pretty much my last 10 years of it was just the prevention side of violence and drug prevention. Bullying was a big issue, and of course cyberbullying was coming up, and so uh, we spent a lot of time with training staff and students about that and how to address that, and families. You were in that career and, and with that focus for you know many years. I, I wonder if during the course of that time if you saw any changes in, say, the drug culture in Amarillo or among Amarillo students. Um, availability or what kinds of drugs were more or less popular? I mean, how did how did that change for your job, you know, as preferences and availability and all that stuff changed for people who were seeking out drugs? So when I started, a lot of the focus was on alcohol and tobacco. Okay. And then from there, of course, moved into marijuana, then moved into meth, 
then cocaine, and then heroin, and then we were just talking about different things for kids. And then, of course, the inhalants were really popular at that time, uh, any kind of huffing that was occurring. And uh, and then kid, it's amazing what kids find to, to use. And so we saw the tobacco changing to then now we're, you know, we see vaping. Um, but it just seems to still be very popular mm-hmm. to use, and kids will find kind of the strangest things to actually use. And then we saw a lot of paraphernalia that would be hidden, and we had to teach staff, you know, what to look for, where would they hide it, um, you know, what kind of pen or whatever would they have, and was there, was there paraphernalia inside there, and just how to identify that, whether it was in their shoe or whatever. So there was quite a bit of training that we had to keep up with and share with staff and, and especially with bullying prevention is, you know, how to really encourage kids to see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And and that's been around for quite a long time. We didn't say it that way, but we definitely wanted kids to stand up for each other and, and say, if you see someone being bullied, step up. And if it's not a safe place to do that, at least go get someone, get an adult that you trust that can come back and, and stop it. And don't just stand there and be the bystander that does nothing. And you started at Caprock, like you said, but but ended up, you know, kind of working for the school system as a whole. I, is yes. did you see any differences uh, between some of the things that were happening at Caprock, whether it's bullying, whether it's drug use, alcohol use, uh, between like that school district or that school cluster and some of the other ones? I mean, is were there differences in? in the neighborhoods and the focus of your job from that regard? So there were, I mean, uh, alcohol was pretty common across the board at the different campuses, especially at the, at the high school level. Um, we did a drug survey every two to three years, and so we were able to see decreases in some areas, increases in others as well. Um, so, yes, I mean, I would say really alcohol and tobacco and marijuana were pretty common among all four clusters when they were clusters at that time in the district. The rest of them, though, it just kind of varied. Uh, You know, what could you afford? What kind of drug could you afford? Um, Inhalants, though, were pretty easy to get because it could be as easy as hairspray. Yeah. So it was pretty easy to find and and have available, just depending on what kids could afford to purchase if they had to buy it at all. And then, of course, we moved into prescription drugs. People were, kids were stealing it. They, They would take it from their parents, from their families, Thrown in a bowl, just pick it, and you, you know, use it, and not knowing the side effects wow. from it, it's pretty dangerous. And um, so, to this day, you know, drug prevention is still important to me because I spent 20 years of my life working with kids and adults, uh, just training them to, you know, don't get involved in it. It's just too difficult. And I would hear kids say, "Oh, miss, it's just a little habit. I can kick it." Then kick it. See how long you can yeah, go without that. it. Yeah, prove it. It's, it's time for you to take that step, you know, and they'd come in and say, it's been three days. Great. Make it a fourth. And then we just kind of went from there. And I, um, I really enjoyed that time with those kids for those 20 years and working with families. And then my last five years with AISD was in the migrant program. Hmm. I was the coordinator for that and had a staff. And these are kids who um, are kids of farm workers, so they are very transient. And they just, you know, they'll come to us from Florida, Minnesota, California, wherever, and they're just passing through. Tell me, yeah, a little bit more about that. Because I, 
I would assume that that's a world that most listeners don't know much about. Um, like how, how many people, how many kids fall into that category and that are passing through and end up in Amarillo, you know, for part of a school year? So I did that and started in 2010 and we had, um, they always are back two years. So there were about 600 kids at that time in Amarillo ISD that were on the migrant program. And that's who we served were the students. And then it came down to probably 300 by the time I left five years later. I think it's probably around that, 300, 350. It's a hard life. It's a very difficult life, and you don't make a lot of money doing it. A lot of travel time. Uh, We would have kids come in, you know, when school started, but then a lot of them didn't come until September, all the way through December. And so we would get kids in December that came in, and they'd be in shorts and flip-flops because they've just come in from Florida or they've come in from California and they're freezing because they don't have winter clothes here. And so our job was to be able to help them find resources from clothing to maybe a place to live. Uh, Their parents are working somewhere. And sometimes they'd be with us a month and sometimes they would be with us, you know, for the semester. And then they'd typically be gone by May Hmm. and start the summer um, migrant work as well. So it just kind of varied. Uh, Amazingly enough, they did pretty well academically. Uh, They had had to adjust. They have to, they're always the new kid. Right. So they had to adjust socially. They had to adjust academically. And for these parents, they wanted their kids to succeed. They want them to have a better life. So that was exciting to see. And we had a parent advisory group. We had our officers. And I loved it when this group came to me and said, we want to go through a first aid training because we're out in the fields. Someone gets injured. There's no doctor. There's no nurse. How do we treat this? And so we did. How long did you work for AISD then? When, when did that part of your career end? So in 2015, after 25 years, I retired. Okay. And then what have you done in retirement? You know, like, I know you've not just been <laughs> sitting around. <laughs> Some people may think that I do that. Um, I actually, my husband is also retired, and so we get to spend a lot of time together. I knew, though, before I retired that I wanted to do volunteer work. I wanted to volunteer at my church. I wanted to volunteer in the community. I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So a a friend of mine and a former pastor of mine, uh, Brady Clark, said, I love all the work you're doing in our church. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're here constantly. I want to encourage you to go outside of these four walls and do community work. Really get to know the people that way and share your faith. And so I was like, okay. So in March of 2017, when the Barrio Neighborhood Committee met for the first time um, and said, we're going to do this plan with the city, a neighborhood plan with the city, that excited me. I knew this neighborhood already. I'd worked in it. And the first time I was introduced to it was when I first moved here. And my sister-in-law, her family lived there. But I also was here when I was 12 years old and my brother married his wife and I visited that neighborhood. Hmm. And I remember asking my brother, do all Hispanics live in this neighborhood? Kind of seems like it. And he said, not anymore, but they used to. So the neighborhood was fascinating to me and I'd spent time at Sanborn and Glenwood, Bowie and Caprock. I was at Bowie for seven years, Caprock for 13 so this was, I don't live in the neighborhood. I'm seven blocks to the east of it. Okay. But this was my neighborhood to be able to work with. And you've, 
you know, been instrumental in, in working with um, establishing the Barrio Neighborhood Plan, um, organizing the community, and, and even chronicling the history of that community uh, with the book that you wrote. So tell me a little bit about that. So in September 2017, so we've already been working on the plan, and um, the Breakfast in the neighbor, Breakfast in the Barrio group came together at a meeting and said, you know, we, we need to record our history. We don't have it written down. And so um, Mercy McGee asked me to head up a task force to work and write this book, a historical book. So there were six or seven of us that came together. Uh, some were residents and some were community people and said, okay, how do we do this? We've never written a book. We've never published a book. What do we do? So we started interviewing early residents, uh, talking to organizations and businesses that support the barrio that are actually in it and outside of it. And then in February, I remember in February 2018, we had these this research done and everything, and it was like, okay, who's going to write it? Mm-hmm. And so I said, I will. So it took us nine months to get it to publication, and we started selling it in September 2018, and it's called the Amarillo Barrio Historical District um, book. And so um, it, we looked at 14 early residents and even and they ranged in age from age forty to um, people who are deceased, so they would have been over a hundred years old. And the oldest living resident that we interviewed was ninety five. And so it was great history to collect. I'm so glad we did it, and it allowed us to move from there in this historical book and historical sites to our historical map that we completed in the summer of 2019, and then the mural, the mural on 10th Avenue on the underpass allows us to share some of those historical sites. Okay. Tell me a little bit of the reason why that's important. I mean, the the barrio is obviously a historic neighborhood in Amarillo, uh, but the history of the barrio is not always or has not always been included prominently in the history of Amarillo. Right. Um, even though it was critical to the development of the city. Um, and so I wonder what, you're an expert, and, and I know that most of my listeners are not. And so I, could, could you kind of educate me, educate our listeners on why it's so important to record that history, but, but also like why the Barrio neighborhood was so critical in the early growth of Amarillo? So Amarillo really came about in 1887. The Barrio neighborhood came about in 1889. So it's only two years younger. Wow. This year we celebrate 131 years in the Barrio neighborhood. And there were two editions of the Barrio neighborhood. The one, if you think where Sanborn Elementary is, off of 7th and Mirror, that was the Mirror edition. And then the Glenwood edition, think about where Glenwood Elementary School is, off of Houston. And so in 1889 is when it was plat- the barrio was platted in the Mir edition. And it was important because railroad workers were coming here, and a lot of them came and then lived in that neighborhood. They were Hispanic, and they lived in the neighborhood. So being in that neighborhood, they needed groceries and to have entertainment and place to live. They typically lived there in that neighborhood. That's where they were allowed to live and to and so they would just walk to work to the railroad, literally just in their neighborhood, and be able to serve there. 
Um, so the railroad was critical to Amarillo. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason the Amarillo exists, exactly. is that railroad stop. Exactly. And so we had to have workers, and they were willing to do a lot of the work. It also allowed us to, uh, I was so amazed by the families. That's the importance of recording history. I learned how families came together and built a boarding house or a grocery store, had their own pool hall. You know, there was a theater downtown that they could actually attend. Um, so they really became very resourceful, and they, they knew, okay, if we're going to have it, we're going to build it. We're going to run it. We're going to run the businesses and stuff. So they had grocery stores and restaurants and so on there in that neighborhood. And I, I just think it's critical that people know how old we are. We're 131 years old and, and beyond, and we're just moving beyond that. So I'm glad we recorded it. Uh, I want other people to learn about the neighborhood, and there's such pride with these families that live there. Um, it's multi-generational, and so from the young kids to our senior citizens, we want them to know their own history. Because being someone who didn't know my own culture, this is really important to me to share that. And not only was the the historical neighborhood critical to Amarillo's early growth, but the the Hispanic culture and the barrio are a big part of Amarillo right now. I mean, Amarillo's population is at least a third people of, of Hispanic origin. Correct. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about the status of the neighborhood now. As, as you're thinking about the, uh, the neighborhood plan, as you're thinking about ways to improve the business, improve um, the neighborhood itself, bring more, you know, more resources to it, what's the status of the neighborhood now and, and kind of where do you see it going? So I'm very excited about it. We will actually unveil the new streetscape for 10th Avenue running from, it's going to be in three phases, from Garfield to Cleveland Street is the first phase. Okay. We'll actually unveil that in September. And um, to be able to let people see that and have our first, first street topper as well to be unveiled. And that's the street that running from downtown. Right. Like, Right. taking people into the neighborhood. Exactly. So 10th Avenue, 3rd Avenue, 27th and Ross are our main corridors. So there's four of them in our neighborhood. 10th is really critical for us because a lot of people travel that road, especially, I mean, maybe you haven't really thought about, oh, I'm in the barrio, but if you've gone to Tacos Garcia or La Frontera, you know, you're in that neighborhood right there. The minute you start going on, on the underpass and you see our mural, on the south side is the Barrio Historical Sites, and on the left side are, is Center City, are the sites for Center City. It really does allow you to start to see, oh, I'm entering a different neighborhood. And the street toppers will allow us to welcome you to the neighborhood, as well as some oval signs that we're having sponsored by different businesses and organizations. And it's introducing you to that. So I'm, I'm excited to see, I've seen the streetscape. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty. I mean, we're talking... Decorative lighting, ADA-accessible sidewalks, pedestrians walking around throughout our neighborhood, and especially on 10th, uh, bus stop benches, things we haven't had before. It really allows us to just be able to share our neighborhood with other, other people that want to come from the city and beyond that. And I love these neighborhood plans. The city of Amarillo has been amazing to work with, with us because it's allowed us to work together. You know, there's been a dream and there's been talk for a long time about improving neighborhoods. This plan allows us to actually see that dream come about. 
So I'm excited about it. You you mentioned that the neighborhood itself was made up of multi-generational families, that yes. there's a lot of community pride built in. There's a lot of business mindset and, and hard work, you know, among the families there. But it's also been a neighborhood that historically has been under-resourced, um, maybe hasn't always had access to um, to either the the banking institutions, to the business help, to even some of the city focus. Um, do you see that changing? I mean, do you, do you see this neighborhood plan representing kind of a shift in awareness of, of some of the, the issues that the barrio has had to deal with over the years? Yes, I do. You know, we, I, I can tell you right off the bat, we're missing four types of businesses, medical and dental services, a pharmacy, and a clothing store. And so um, you had a lady here from the WT Enterprise, Kyla. Kyla, yeah. Kyla spoke just recently. And so after hearing her on your podcast, I called her. I, I sent her an email, and she called me. We had a great visit and said, you know, there are three neighborhoods, San Jacinto, North Heights, and the Barrio, and, and we could be interested in having some training done. How do we bring in new business, especially those four that we need in the Barrio? And so we're going to be working with her very soon to have some training done and hopefully involving the AEDC and then the small business group from WT as well. Those are groups that I have not worked with before and, and our group hasn't worked with before as the Barrio Neighborhood Planning Committee. So I'm excited about being able to work with them and learn from them because we do want to bring in new business. We want to encourage people to, to live there, work there, and, and use the resources there. And the plan has allowed us to put in 19 goals and 36 strategies to say, here's what we want to focus wow. on. And so we keep 10, 10 mo- really projects in motion to go, okay, let's focus on this. And with COVID, we have had to just really meet by, uh, at this point, we've just been doing a lot of emails and texting back and forth. Eventually we'll move to Zoom. But it has really... We've had to look at what are the basic needs again, you know, food, clothing, blankets, things like that for our families, especially our senior citizens. Um, You know, how do we serve them best, our families best? And so I think this plan has allowed us to do that. So there's been a little adjustment with the plan because we have had to think about, go back to the basic needs again. So you grew up in a different place and arrived here in the area you know, as a college student, um, but here you are today. So tell me, tell me why you stayed. I mean, what was the the thing about Amarillo that made you think, okay, this is going to be home. I'm going to plant myself here. You know, when my mother allowed me to come and my little sister followed me a couple of years later, she said, I let you go because I didn't think you'd stay. I thought you'd come home. And most of my family is still in Utah. However, once I was here and I married at that time, um, I remember thinking, I like this place. There's four seasons. It's not a huge, huge city like Dallas, Houston. Uh, I almost moved to San Antonio at one point. And then you get the country very easily. Now, if you could bring some mountains in, I'd be happy. Happier, but that's okay. You can hit it. you can catch them in Albuquerque. Um, but it it's a neat place to live. It's very family-oriented. It's very resourceful, and I like that. Because I'm about finding resources. If you tell me no, I'm good with that. Just tell me where else I need to go. 
Where do I need to find the solution to the problem? And I'm good with that. And I think Amarillo allows me to do that. This episode is sponsored by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You probably know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and that includes the one in Amarillo. It's owned and operated by the Hawkins family, who live right here in town. Lazy Boy is open for business now, and almost everything they sell is American-made, and it's a lot more than just recliners. You can visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sansi. And we're back with Teresa Kennedy of the Barrio Neighborhood Planning Committee. Teresa, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight classic vehicles I wish I could drive, including a cherry red Plymouth Special Deluxe convertible made in 1941. It is such a cool car. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, Teresa, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions, and as my guest, you get to answer those in as much detail as you want. Uh, the first one is relatively new, uh, and I've been asking it uh, the last few months, but what is one thing the last few months, whether it's related to the pandemic or the protests, uh, what's something it's taught you about Amarillo or Amarillo people? It's taught me that we like to help each other, uh, neighbors helping neighbors, strangers helping strangers from when there was such a great request for where do I find food, where do I find hand sanitizer, wipe, hand wipes and so on, all the way to, you know, I'm in trouble, how I need help. And I think Amarillo is really good about that, very resourceful. Um, you may not have a lot, of, a lot of money, but you have time. You have skills that you can contribute, and I appreciate that that we're able to share those skills with each other and hope we'll continue to do it. What's the most underrated aspect of living in this area? I'm not sure that people realize how important it is to volunteer, hmm. to actually give of your time, to give of not just your money, but your time and your skills. Uh, for me, it's about organization. And so I like to be able to say, okay, here's a problem. How do we solve it? Where do we get the answers? And I'm okay with asking a lot of people where do we find that? And um, I even said that to Emily Kohler the other day with the city. I know we have a problem. How do we solve it today? Let's get it worked out. And we were able to do that. So I appreciate that people are willing to come together, however they do, Zoom, mm -hmm. by phone, text, whatever now, since we're doing, doing this during COVID. But it allows us to really share our thoughts and ideas. And no idea is a bad idea. It's just may not, maybe not happen today, but it'll happen in the future. What does this area have too much of? Wind. Yeah. I'm, you know, that was the biggest adjustment for me was how windy it was because my town, Snowville, Tremont, and even Salt Lake are built in a valley. And so you had a lot of, you know, mountains and trees and so on around you. And there's just a great deal of wind. Now, I'm really glad the solution to that is our wind farms. So there you go. It's, it's a benefit to our community. There's just a lot of wind. And when it doesn't blow, I'm just kind of shocked. Yeah. Like, oh. Something feels wrong. Yes. Like, where's the wind? What does this area not have enough of? I believe it's important that we visit each other's neighborhoods. I love what Mildred Darton from North Heights and I are doing as we're getting to know each other even more. 
we go to each other's neighborhood restaurants when we meet. And now we've included Catherine Traves from San Jacinto. Okay. To come together and get to know it. So I've been to Delvin's. I've been to the eatery on Route 66. On six, yeah. Right? Great food. These places really offer great food. But I'm getting to see the neighborhood and we're driving around. And Mildred and I went through a video uh, training together. And I got to visit her neighborhood and take video of so many churches that they have. They have so many historical sites, just like we do. And uh, then she visited my neighborhood as I filmed it. And so it was exciting just to be able to share the stories. Mildred was telling me that in North Heights, there were something like over 160 businesses at one time, active businesses mm. in North Heights. And that fascinates me. I said, where's the map of that? And she said, we're going to be working on one. Because it's so important, I think, for people to know what, what the history is and then where do we go from there. And so just like in the barrio, we're really able to share through our map, through our book, through the mural and so on, and then soon to be the streetscape, what has been and what, what it's going to look like and how much improvement can happen. I love that answer. Uh, that's, that's something that a number of guests have said um, just organically is that in Amarillo, there's a tendency to stay in your own neighborhood, stay in your own part of town. And to really get the no to know the city, you've got to go visit those other neighborhoods. You've got to experience what it's like to live in East Amarillo, what it's like to live in North Amarillo, what it's like to live in South or Southwest Amarillo if you don't live in those places. And that's um, that's true, you know, of anybody who travels. You know, it's to understand the American experience, you've got to visit other parts of the United States. But we don't often apply that thinking to our own towns. And so I love the idea of just getting out of, of your comfortable neighborhood in, in order to experience what Amarillo is like all over it. I agree. I heard someone saying on one of your podcasts, we have to get out of our bubbles. And I agree with that because I've learned a lot about North Heights and I'm learning about San Jacinto. In fact, I just saw San Jacinto's Neighborhood Association Facebook. They just came out with one and I'm so glad. So on the Barrio Neighborhood um, Planning Facebook, I like to include what's going on in the other neighborhoods mm -hmm. to be able to do that. And even with our street topper, we're hearing from other neighborhoods starting to buy our street toppers representing their own neighborhoods. So that's exciting Good. to see. What, uh, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Maybe when you're talking to your family back home in Utah. How do you, how do you talk about this place? Friendly, for sure. That's the first thing. Resourceful. Uh, there's a lot of volunteers that work here that, that give of their time and their skills, and I appreciate that. And I just think when there's an issue like COVID, people really came together and work. We still are working well together to be able to say, how do we solve this problem? You know, who has this? What resources do you have? What can I share with you? What can I, you know, how can we help each other? And I really appreciate that about our neighborhood. And it's just small enough to me. I said to my husband today, you really can't get lost in Amarillo. However, I did get lost coming <laughs> uh, to see you today. Famous last words. <laughs> when was the last time you went to Paladura Canyon? I had to think about that. It was 2005. Okay. We went down to ride horses okay. at the Paladura Stable. When I first came here in 90, 1981, I took my roommates, or my friends, 
brand new friends from San Antonio down there to ride horses, and they never did it again. They they just didn't get the point of riding a horse. Um, but that was the first time I visited was with, in 1981. So All right. I've been out there in quite 2005, a while. 2005, you need to go back. That's, I know, it's It's time. been too long. What's your favorite local restaurant? You've already talked about uh, a few uh, in various neighborhoods, but what's your favorite? Tacos Garcia okay. has to be my favorite on Ross. I spend time there as well, so I like that. If it's Thai food, it's Taste of Thai, so okay. I could go either way. Was was food a big part of your, your family culture? Absolutely. My mother made homemade Mexican food every day. So I want you to think about the smell of tortillas mm-hmm. every day in your home. That was our bread. And she would make this huge stack. And then our neighbors could smell it because our windows would be open. And so they'd st- our, our, my friends would start coming to the door. Can I just have one with butter? I don't even need it with butter. Just can I just have a tortilla? And so this huge stack that my mom would make per meal would get about half because we'd start giving it. And so at a very young age, I learned to give away food. And, um, and then at nine years old, I started baking with my best friend, Nancy. And we would bake cookies. I started with an Easy Bake Oven. Oh, yeah. And then moved to my brothers would buy me mixes. And then my mom said, I think you're old enough to start baking in the oven as long as you clean it up. And that became my baking debut. I've been baking since. I want to ask you this question because I I know you're uh, particularly, you know, adept at at answering it, but what's your favorite historical location in the barrio? Having dug into that history, having recorded that history, is there any particular landmark or site or story that kind of stands out? I would say Our Lady of Guadalupe. It happens to be our oldest site in the neighborhood. It will literally be 102 years old this October. This the first church, Catholic church in Amarillo? The Emerald? first Catholic church. It was a Sacred Heart Cathedral. It was actually downtown in 1918 when they built it. And then they moved it to 11th South Arthur. And then now it's at 11th South Houston. And what was so great about it is some of the nuns would go to the, you know, railroad workers were paid on Friday. They would go to these workers and they would ask them to donate to this church. So here's these workers that came from different parts of the country, even from Mexico, that would donate to build a church that they would attend, that they could attend in downtown and then eventually in their own neighborhood. And that church fascinates me. It looks a lot like a mission. Yeah. And then in 1928, they added a school to it. So as we, I, we interviewed early residents. A lot of them went to that church, sent their kids to that school, and it's still standing today, the school. The school had clo- has closed, but it's really a beautiful place. And my close second is San Marin Elementary School. Okay. I spent time there. Uh, I got to do trainings with staff there and with parents. But also, it's named after the, quote, father of Amarillo, Henry Sanborn. And so it allows people to really look. Just looking at that building, so different. The architecture on it is very different. And it's and because I was with the school district for so long, it's amazing that a church and a school would have such significance mm-hmm. to our neighborhood and, and become does. central, really, as as gathering places for communities. Absolutely, Our Lady was a and still is a huge gathering place because it allows people to just relax, accept you as you are. We're in the neighborhood for life. 
Okay, so that concludes the eight straight questions. Teresa, I'd like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience in this area? As the three neighborhoods have come together, we did a census project together, the Barrio, North Heights, and the, and um, San Jacinto. We're coming together for a new project to do no-sew blankets for our families. Okay. Especially the families with very little heat or uh, no heat in their homes for this winter. And so I'm going to ask our neighbors in, throughout the city, all areas of our city, to come together and donate blankets for our families, especially our senior citizens. And we, want, we need them by um, uh, late October to really just be able to share that. That's time um, that you can give. That's a skill that you have to be able to share with our families. And really, I can't be any more grateful than that to just say thanks. Thanks, Amarillo, for 39 years of my life here and more to come. And really just to not only to welcome my family and me, but to welcome newcomers. To our city. Teresa Kennedy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Teresa for the interview and, of course, to Angelina Marie for editing the show every week. Thanks also to show sponsors Blue Handle Publishing and Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring 8 Straight every week. That's a new thing. I hope you enjoy it. Supporters of Hey Amarillo through Patreon include executive producers Barbara and Jim Witten, Griselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Jess Heredia, Katie Linger, Jennifer Callahan, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, and Joshua Rafe. This has been episode 162, if you can believe it. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>